Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hey, this is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. I want to make an argument for a new emblem for the United States. The bald eagle just isn't cutting it. It's too cool, too perfect. Everybody loves an eagle. For these divisive times, we need an animal that is badass, sure, but also polarizing, destructive. This is why I humbly nominate the wild horse. Horses are symbols of freedom, strength, and the American West. There are rock songs about them. Wild, wild Sports teams named after them. And the Broncos will win. And when you want to rip down a desert highway at 120 miles an hour, you do it in a Ford Mustang. When you see a man with horse sense, a Mustang's what he picks. But out where wild horses actually roam, you'll hear a very different story. Some folks in the West, especially ranchers, say that horses are pests, an invasive species whose population is way out of control. There have even been stories in the news of people taking the issue into their own hands. Advocates now say that they have found more horses shot to death in northern Arizona. Horses all babies, one of them dead, two in very bad shape. A Lyon County man is accused of shooting and killing a wild horse with a crossbow. These are extreme cases, but as a reporter with more than a decade of experience, I can tell you that wild horses are by far the most controversial issue that I have ever covered. I mean, what's more American than that? 
again. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. And today on the show, what happens when a symbol of the American spirit is allowed to run wild? Stay tuned. You like hot sauce? Yeah. A few weeks ago, I met Craig Ironpipe on his cattle ranch on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. He was cooking up some ramen noodles. Well, yeah. Cousin, she makes this hot sauce. Yeah. And I can't eat these noodles without it, man. But I wasn't there for lunch. I was there because if there's anyone that represents America's complicated relationship with the horse, it's probably Craig. So that movie there is called Geronimo. Okay, Geronimo. Craig spent years as a stuntman. There are photos of him riding horses in Hollywood movies all over the place. You ever see that Michael Jackson video, Black or White? He was in that. So that was us on horses running around the stage down there in uh, L.A. Craig says he practically grew up on a horse here on the reservation. Riding them feels as natural as driving a car. I lived out here in the country, and the things was, was um, that was our entertainment, was to get on a horse, and there was no fences back then. And so we just rode and rode all day long exploring. The Blackfeet Reservation, it's a good place to explore. It looks like it's out of a movie. There are windswept plains, jutting mountains, and a lot of horses here. Now, it can be controversial to call any animal invasive or non-native, but I will say this about horses. While their ancestors evolved in North America, they were pretty small, looked like zebras, and they went extinct during the last ice age. The modern day horse, it arrived in North America with the Spanish in the 1500s. Then it spread north from tribe to tribe until the Blackfeet got a hold of them in the 17th century. This was a domesticated animal. And just like America was later transformed by the automobile, Blackfeet culture was transformed by the horse. They could carry hundreds of pounds of gear, travel 40 or 50 miles a day, even chase down bison. Families, they would have dozens, sometimes even hundreds of horses. And that's how our wealth was, was measured by, was how many horses you had. But times have changed. And nowadays, Craig says there are too many horses on the reservation. So look over in the pines right over there. After lunch, Craig took me out driving in his pickup truck. We were searching for horses, and we pulled over near a small pond. You can't miss him. He's right there. Well, I might be looking too far. Are we, uh... Put your hunting eyes on. <laughs> I know. I feel really embarrassed right now. <laughs> Come on, Nate. There he is. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> it was a brown Mustang, grazing, silhouetted against some short, scraggly pine. The kind of scene that would make a wildlife photographer giddy. But as we kept driving, we started seeing more of them. Oh, there's a bunch of horses right there. Three more up there. Oh, those are cows. Oh, those are cattle. But there's some horses in here also. At one point, Craig pulled over, looked out onto the prairie, and just started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, about 25 that's visible right there. It's almost like they're as plentiful as you see deer, you know, on the side of the road. Yeah. 
All of these horses are free roaming. This means that they were either born wild or they've been abandoned by their owners. Almost every single one that I saw, their heads were down, grazing. Just like a car, a horse needs a lot of fuel. We're talking 20 pounds of grass or shrubs a day just to keep healthy. And they don't just nibble. Unlike cows, they eat grass right down to the root. Horses are also voracious breeders. In good conditions, herds can double in size every few years. So nowadays, there are at least 16,000 of these very hungry horses roaming a reservation that's about a third the size of New Hampshire. The result? There are entire fields that look more like brown dirt deserts, save for some patches of green. Okay, so that's juniper. So that's what replaced the grass here. Oh, wow, so this is completely, it almost looks denuded, except for, as you said, juniper, which is just kind of very low growing. So juniper is Mother Nature's way of keeping the topsoil here. So without topsoil, nothing will grow. So you know how long it takes to make dirt? No. So the natural way, over a hundred years. The horses don't really graze on the juniper, but they eat almost everything else. Craig said it would take at least five years for grass to regrow in these denuded fields. And while there are rules here about where ranchers can put their cows and for how long, no one controls where these horses decide to go, which means they're also getting into ranch land. So we're going into my field right here. Craig, like a lot of other families here, raises cattle. They became ranchers and farmers after the government forced the Blackfeet onto this reservation in the late 1800s. So when I took my dad's place over our family ranch, I started studying how to be confined, basically. Um, so all these fences came up. So we have a field here, this eastern part of my field. That's where my horses are. So we've only owned, you know, anywhere from two to five horses at the most. That's because of the land. That's what the land can handle. The rest of his fields have cows on them. He can sell them for more than $1,000 a head. That's a livelihood. So when you find a bunch of hungry horses on the same rangeland that you have your cows on? There's big, big competition. This is where the heart of the controversy is. One introduced species, the horse, competing against another introduced species, the cow. They both arrived with the Spanish in Mexico. They are both symbols of the West, but... Right now, there's no economy for the horses. You know, for somebody that's raising cattle, there's always, every year, you get a, you get a, you get a paycheck. This isn't just a Blackfeet problem. There are roughly 225,000 horses roaming freely in the Western United States on both reservations and federal public lands. That population has more than tripled since 2007. Now, the United States has few qualms about killing animals it deems a nuisance. We hunt feral pigs in the South, invasive deer in Hawaii, Heck, there's a federal government agency that kills more than 50,000 coyotes every year 
because they sometimes eat cattle and sheep out west. But horses are a different story. Who doesn't love a horse? This is Tolani Francisco. She's a veterinarian, wild horse expert, and an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe. I mean, look at them. They're, they're majestic. They're wonderful animals. I mean, I grew up reading books like My Friend Flicka and Justin Morgan Had a Horse and Black Beauty and, and all of these things. And so I think that there is, there is a generalized love, but there's also a generalized misunderstanding about a horse. It wasn't always this way. Americans used to view horses more practically as beasts of burden. We rode them to war. They hauled our hay. The first cabs in New York City were pulled by horses. And when those horses couldn't pull that cab anymore, we sent them to the slaughterhouse, turned them into dog food, into glue. Out west, we actually rounded up and killed those wild mustangs because they were just that, wild and of very little use. But by the 1950s, times were a-changing. Combustion engines measured in horsepower had taken over, and those wild herds out west were dwindling. So it didn't take long for these horses to become nostalgic symbols of America's past. In 1946, Black Beauty hit movie theaters. John Ford Westerns got popular. By day and by night they rode, hellbent for glory. And the idea of cowboys brutally rounding up wild horse herds and then shooting them didn't sit right with a lot of Americans. So this bizarre coalition of activists, Hollywood actors, country singers, and even a conservative writer from New Hampshire all lobbied Congress to protect those wild horses out west. And it worked. They passed a series of laws protecting wild horse herds on federal public lands. No hunting, no shooting. It's similar to how we protect bald eagles in this country. It says this in the law that they, you know, are icons of the American West, the pioneer spirit. Well, to natives, eh, okay, maybe that's not a good way to say it. For Tolani, the wild horse is more of a symbol of colonialism. My ancestry has been here since time immemorial from the Pueblo of Laguna. And we speak the Karis language. And the word for horse in the Karis language is cobayo. Which is the Spanish word for horse. Yeah. So very, very similar. Regardless, she says, these protections mean that the federal government has a responsibility to manage these horses. Tulani works for the USDA as a wild horse and burrow coordinator. She says one of their duties is to set limits for how big a herd can grow. The, the AML was set appropriate management level. Sorry, I used an acronym and I try not to use those. Appropriate management level was set by the federal government at around 26,000 for these western states. And we are currently significantly over that, probably to the tune of about 80. I think the last I've heard is somewhere in the 70 to 80,000 range, maybe even more. Federal agencies have been trying to get those numbers down, but they've run into problems. Right now, the most common method is roundups. Contractors will use a helicopter to corral herds. Then they take some of them to facilities where they can be adopted. Now, the average cost for a recreational horse is around $3,000. But the government will actually pay you to adopt a wild Mustang. Up to $1,000. But not every horse is going to be the lovable, gentle, 
you know, animal that, that we all want them, want to believe that they are. That's the problem. I mean, we've seen this in the movies, right? Wild horses, they need a ton of training. So a lot of these rounded up Mustangs, they end up languishing in long-term holding facilities, pens that are paid for by U.S. taxpayers. The roundups are also super controversial. Every year, some of the horses get spooked by the helicopters, get injured, and die. So wild horse advocates, they want the federal government to launch an aggressive birth control campaign instead. But Tolani says that's tricky. The birth control needs to be administered to mares every year, and people have to get close enough to those wild horses to hit them with a dart from a gun. And so to a lot of these populations, um, like out at Laguna, I can't get within a half mile and the horses take off. This kind of birth control has worked on horse herds that are already used to humans. But there are a lot of them out there that aren't. There is another solution. The one that nobody ever wants to talk about. The deadly grim reaper. Hey, by the way, thanks for listening. We literally cannot make this show without you. And if you give right now, it'll get matched dollar for dollar. You can check out the details in the show notes or at outsideinradio.org. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, this is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. My family came into town over the holidays. And one night we went to the Buckhorn Bar. It's a classic burger and beer joint. And sure enough, I ordered their half pound burger, took a big bite, loved it. The meat is local. Here in Montana, I am surrounded by thousands of cows and horses. But we only eat the cows. Why is that? Horse meat was taboo, sort of unchristian. This is Susanna Forrest. She's a writer who is focused on the history of eating or not eating horse. And in Europe, it wasn't always this way. The Germans were chowing down on horse until Christianity came along. The Old Testament deemed horses as uncleaned animals, not fit for eating. Cattle, however, were listed as clean. In the 700s, the Pope was sending out letters to the Germans and others telling them to quit cooking up these horse steaks. It become quite extreme to the point where in the 17th century, someone in France was actually executed for eating horse meat during Lent. All of this changed during the Napoleonic Wars. They ushered in famine and poverty. People needed a source of red meat and protein. And back then, horses were like cars. Copenhagen, I think, was the first place to legalize horse meat consumption. And that was because the British were 
laying siege to it in um, 1807. Uh, and this sort of kicked off. It was a, really a kind of um, idea which took off in some countries faster than in others. The French, for example, held out for a really long time. Uh, and some people think it was literally the siege of Paris, you know, um, much later in the century that finally um, tipped the balance. Across the pond, America, bathed in its Judeo-Christian roots, was watching Europe's newfound taste for horse with absolute disgust and horror. You know, oh, look, it's poor Europe. This is what they have to do in the old country. You know, the poor are eating horse meat soup. This is how much it costs to eat horse sausage in Vienna. You know, this is what the people of Paris had to eat during the siege. Uh, This is what nihilists in Russia eat. You know, they share a horse among themselves. But fast forward to today, and in a lot of places outside the U.S., horse is still on the menu. In Japan, it's sliced thin and served as sashimi. In Belgium, you can get horse as a deli meat for sandwiches. Hungary, Iceland, Italy, France, minced, steaks, sausages, you name it. I'm not exactly sure which butcher shop we're going to, but... It's called um, Boucherie Prince Noir. We sent our producer, Justine Paradise, to Montreal, Canada, on a mission to try some horse meat. She brought along a friend, Neil Rockwell. Hey, Kier, do you guys have, like, smoked horse meat? No. No, or, like... Fresh horse. Okay, only fresh. Okay, so, looks like we're going to have to go grill this. So, thank you very much. Great, thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, I'm going to turn on the barbecue. Hey Siri, set timer for one minute and 45 seconds. Kind of tastes like beef, but bad. Like, you know, like too tough, no fat, not like, it's like just sort of like a cheap steak. It's just a specific, it's a gamey, like you shouldn't compare it to beef, you know? But I am. I find it impossible not to. Beef. If, historically, horse was considered poor people food, beef was the exact opposite. For centuries, it was considered the food of the wealthy because you needed land to raise them. America had a lot of land, so suddenly this food of the wealthy could become the food of the masses. And it also had this aura about it, that beef makes you strong. I'll have that brand on enough beef to to feed the whole country. Good beef for hungry people. Beef to make them strong, make them grow. But even the American taboo against horse meat has faltered at times. When other meats were hard to come by after World War II, sale of horse meat surged. President Truman, he even had a nickname, Horse Meat Harry. And before that? Just about everybody will tell you that that natives, we ate horses. That's Tolani Francisco again. I know that I've talked to a lot of elder Navajos and the Dene people in Laguna, we call them Dene. They they said, no, you know what? We, we hunted horses, you know. If a horse went lame, grandmother and grandfather way back in the day, they didn't waste that protein. They utilized that animal. You, you slaughtered it, you gave thanks to it, you asked its spirit to become part of you, and you gave, you gave it 
you know, to the family to use. And you used everything. I mean, bones, feet, hair, hide, everything. I mentioned before that the slaughter or hunting of federally protected wild horses on public lands is illegal. But that's not the case on many reservations. And like I said, populations are growing there too. Tulani believes that the management of those herds needs a multi-pronged approach. Yes, adoption, birth control, sterilization, but also culling. You know what? None of us is ever going to stay alive the rest of our lives. And so when we have to address that method, um, I think that we need to realize that there we can have life out of death. In 2018, the Navajo Nation tried to do just that. Their wildlife agency said there was as many as 50,000 free-ranging horses across the reservation. Meanwhile, native species like elk and mule deer were struggling, being outcompeted. So officials planned a first-of-its-kind horse hunt on Navajo land. But the proposed hunt set off a firestorm. Activists showed up to protest, and it was eventually canceled by the Navajo Nation president. The irony here is that even though American laws and American views on horse meat have prevented hunts and horse slaughter in the U.S., the killing still happens. It just happens somewhere else. For instance, some of the folks that adopt those cheap wild horses from the federal government have then exploited loopholes in the law to send those horses to slaughterhouses in Mexico and Canada. And tribes who aren't bound by those same federal laws, they'll send some of their free-ranging horses to slaughter in those countries too. In other words, we hold horses up as a symbol of American freedom. But then we look the other way when the reality doesn't line up with our ideals. Horse slaughterhouses are effectively banned in the U.S. because federal law prohibits the USDA from inspecting them. But then we ship horses hundreds or even thousands of miles away and pretend like the outcome isn't the same. Craig Ironpipe, he'd rather see us dealing with our free-ranging horse problem here in the U.S., in fact, he'd love to see the Blackfeet export some of their horse meat directly to Europe. And so um, right now I'm in talks with a lady from Italy. And so uh, they eat horse in Italy too. So, you know, but the part is, is um, trying to learn how we're going to get it there. Eighty percent of Americans don't like the idea of slaughtering horse. So the politics of actually doing this, that's actually one of the few issues in Congress that isn't divisive. There are bipartisan bills moving through the House and Senate that would permanently ban the slaughter of horses in the U.S. It would also ban the transfer of horses across the border for slaughter, too. A bunch of Democrats and Republicans have signed on to it. They called the slaughter a, quote, gruesome practice. Even Tucker Carlson has expressed horror at slaughtering horses. A couple of years ago, he interviewed an activist about it. I'm sorry, I mean, of all the things going on in this country that need fixing, is there some reason we need to bother the wild horses in the first place? If they're on federal, you know, we have vast reserves of federal land. We do have a lot of that. Why are we right. hassling the wild horses? Do you know? Because the livestock industry has a huge, um, a huge amount of power and money, and they want all the horses gone. This is an argument, by the way, that you hear a lot, that this quote-unquote wild horse problem is actually an agriculture problem. 
that the horses are competing with the millions of non-native cattle that graze on arid lands in the West. And those cows, there are way more of them. They can be just as brutal to the land. And they're a huge contributor to climate change. There are even some advocates and environmentalists who say we are focusing on the wrong non-native species all along. But you don't see Republicans and Democrats uniting to end the slaughter of cattle. More than two-thirds of Americans eat beef, and Tucker Carlson, he loves a burger. Build your burger with peanut butter on the bun, a burger patty, more peanut butter than fried bananas and cooked bacon, needless to say, then drizzle some honey on top. Sure, part of this is because the American livestock industry has a lot of power and influence. But I also think that cows lack something that horses have in spades. A great story. It's black beauty, not black bovine. No John Wayne on cowback. Wild, wild cattle just doesn't have the same ring to it. Even Craig Ironpipe struggles with this. On one hand, horses are just another type of meat. On the other hand, they're not. It's a protein. Chickens are protein, uh, fish is protein, cows are protein, pigs are protein. Our bodies need protein, you know. Do you, do you think you would ever eat horse? I was offered horse over there and, you know, just from, you know, me training them and all that kind of stuff. There, there, there is that bond, you know. Um, I guess if I was starving, I'd, I definitely would eat that horse. There was never a history with the Blackfeet of, of consuming horse. No, we stole horses. (laughs) This episode was written and produced by me, Nate Hedgie, with help from Taylor Quimby, who was my editor. Our team also includes Felix Poon and Justine Paradise. Thank you, Justine and Neil, for trying horse meat. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. You can find a link to Susanna Forrest's book, The Age of the Horse, in our show notes. We'll also have some links to studies on the origin of horses in North America and how birth control has actually worked for one herd in Nevada. Obviously, this was a very touchy subject, so we'd love to know what you think. You can join our private Facebook group, or you can send us an email to outsidein at nhpr.org. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of NHPR.